Hey, this is the last coffee house. I got something special for you today. So who should you be? Should you be neurotic? Happy? A botanist? Funny? A hippie? If it's the last one, have I got the book for you. A Way of Being is written by Carl R. Rogers, which has way too many R. Carl R. Rogers. <laughs> way too many R's. The R stands for Ransom. That's not a joke. It's, his middle name is actually Ransom. I was hoping it stood for Roger, so he'd be Carl Roger Rogers. <laughs> that should not make me laugh that much. He is the founder of the humanist psychology movement. And this book in particular was published in 1980. He died in 1987, so this is right before the end. Or he had seven years. It's not right before, but still. So what are the contents of this particular book? One of his big ideas is that you've got to be able to communicate emotionally. Your own experiences are emphasized, and it's really important for people to feel like they are deeply heard. He throws in some comments on growing old, just some reflections, the process of dying in general. He talks about his ailing wife, who would eventually pass away. And here is where we get a little off track. We'll say it's just a little here, and then we're going to drive off a cliff into a mountain that then explodes. So he talks about how there was a medium around this time that was talking to a person that his wife knew or something like that. So they would use this medium to talk to the dead person. And he said he was more open to the continuation of the human spirit after death as of the writing of the book. So, like I said, this is just a little veer, little veerage when it comes to concepts that are helpful to anybody <laughs> or that are likely supported by argument and evidence. But okay, so then he goes on to separate realities, which again, we're we're getting into it now. So that, remember, this was the 80s. So this is before we're like full-fledged postmodernist cultural Marxism crazy stuff. This was before all that. So separate realities. Uh, he talks about a guy who became convinced that dolphins could read his thoughts. And the big issue, the big issues, this is going to, oh my gosh, this is going to be so long. I have so many things to talk about here. The big issue here is you end up with this false binary that's kind of presented in this book. And that's one of the most frustrating things about any kind of a book like this, where you kind of put on equal scale a world where, where dolphins read your thoughts and a world where dolphins don't read your thoughts. And the book itself and the author doesn't really have an interest in making that demarcation or scaling the truth of propositions to arguments and evidence or the rigors of the scientific process or anything like that. And then he goes on to talk about how the world can be expressed as unity based on love. And I thought, you know, I was getting it. I thought it was part of the Sam Harris reading list, but it's actually part of the Jordan Peterson reading list. So this is the first misfire from Jordan Peterson. And there are as many real worlds as there are people. And again, this is stuff that doesn't mean anything. You have to do so much work to get that to mean something. And it's just vaguely plopped in the middle of a sentence here. He implores you to understand other people's realities. And what we're doing is just eviscerating the meaning of words that we have already established. Like what reality means. So it's not this big, beautiful shift, you know, that like paradigm shift of where how we need to look at the way science works. It's just messing with the definitions of words we already have definitions for. 
Okay, foundations of a person-centered approach. So he gets into some more concrete stuff, which is much appreciated. The person-centered approach needs to be genuine, needs to be transparent, needs to practice acceptance or caring or prizing, it needs to have unconditional positive regard and be non-possessive and empathic. So lots of concepts there, great concepts that can at least be defined and determined uh, whether they should be applied in the psychological field and how effective they are and what they actually do and all that. I mean, those are all good things to think about in this, in this field. And he says that you can see changes in personality and behavior occur when you practice these particular things. There are studies since 1940 that he references, he says, that demonstrate the efficacy of doing these things in psychology and psychoanalysis rather than other kinds of methods. He asserts that life is an active process and needs to be treated as such, which I don't know how applicable that really is, but... The fact that we're constantly changing as opposed to just static individuals that have to be treated like that, I mean, that's a fine idea. You still have to tether it to something. People have focused historically on entropy rather than something that's positive or constructive. You know, entropy is just the slow death of everything, the unraveling, the tendency toward chaos. And he says there's some other thing that we can try to focus on. Oneness of spirit in community. And in this community, he felt the power of life force and talks about mystical dimensions. And then, of course, like everybody who brings up a bunch of spiritual mystical nonsense and they bring up physics and quantum physics because spooky physics confirms my vague philosophy. And then separate but complementary roads. He, he quotes another psychologist or philosopher who talks about how the ideas of mysticism and mystical dimensions and all that is just separate but complementary to like science and the rigors of science and all that, which is of course a reflection of the Noma concept, the non-overlapping magisteria, where Stephen Jay Gould said that religion and science don't overlap and they just, they're parallel and they just complement each other to try to figure out the world. So I don't buy that at all, not even a little bit. Empathy, high degree of empathy, most important for changing character and learning. There are, he goes over a bunch of different approaches, psychological approaches or psychoanalysis approaches and defines empathy. Kudos to him for that, actually giving a clear definition of empathy that we can work with. So I appreciate that. Brings up Ellen West, who was a patient who was treated by others, but he uses it as a illustration, as an illustration of the way that people are treated in psychoanalysis and she was treated as an object you know she was going through all these things and likely had a number of ailments psychological ailments but she was treated by her doctors as an object as opposed to being treated by a person and rogers says that this is the wrong way to do it it might be fine for physical like you can treat somebody as an object when it comes to physically healing them but you can't do it for psychological uh, i don't see why there should be a distinction there but you know that's what the author suggests talks about building person-centered communities where you're confident in the staff and you have an ability to let go and they created these pilot models to be able to do this in more places and the point is, and he'll get into it multiple times as he goes through, that there shouldn't be some kind of a charismatic leader at the top, or it shouldn't be a hierarchy or anything like that. So it's super duper communist. <laughs> the idea is to have these kinds of person-centered communities where you deal with the whole person instead of just dealing with the objects or the intellect types of stuff. So he goes over six vignettes, which are really just anecdotes. 
book of them were I Began to Lose Me was one where there was a woman who was developing a separate self from herself and had to figure out who her real self was. I think it's a whole bunch of indulgent nonsense and narcissistic nonsense, but you know, whatever. The Cavern was a guy who reread Roger's writings and that should be a children's book, reread Roger's writings. Um, so he reread those, and he said there was a cavern inside him that must be filled or something. And Nancy mourns there was a woman named Nancy who hadn't gotten over the grief of losing her father or not having a good relationship with the father, and she was mean to a couple of blondes who looked alike or something. So some anecdotes, yeah, you can, you can have a look at those. Some new challenges for helping professions. He says, the concept of science must change or psychology will become more irrelevant, which is pure insanity to me. <laughs> so science has to change to encompass whatever psychology happens to be at the time, as opposed to psychology changing to fit better the standards established by science. I mean, come on. He asks, why aren't psychologists at the heart of building the environment? So like building buildings and, and planning cities and all that stuff. I don't know, it was probably for the same reason that engineers are at the center of doing that sort of thing. And then he goes into how there's more than one reality. Maybe answers his own question there. Talks about mystics and Carlos Castaneda. How psychology is the most insecure of the sciences, probably with justification. And then brings up some stuff about precognition, like it's minority report and simultaneous cognition of the death of a loved one and calls those things one of the most exciting challenges of psychology. And, okay. Okay, we get into some more, a little better <laughs> tethered stuff after that, where he talks about uh, learning encompassing both ideas and feelings. Now, I don't agree with this. I, I mean, to some extent, you have to be cognizant of and address how students feel, obviously. You have to deal with their feelings in a constructive way and make sure they're capable of dealing with those feelings themselves. But the more emphasis you put on that, I mean, it's a problem. So he says you can't have knowledge without feeling and or knowledge without feeling is a problem and references warfare and bombing raids and stuff like that. And references like students and training teachers in different ways where you have no grades and you humanize educational institutions. And, and he'll get into it more where it's like this kind of more student-centric wherein the students are more involved in their own instruction. I just had this flash of somebody having a pencil and a piece of paper and being like, Okay kid, here's a pencil, here's a piece of paper, now figure out functional calculus. Really? Do we need to do this? Do we need to open it up in this way? Is this necessary? Is this useful? Is this good for us? I mean, the, po the point of education is to impart to the youth the things that we think would be important for them to, to have to be able to move and function in the world in, a, in an effective way. And the point, the important point, is that we already figured this stuff out, you know? It's not like, okay, figure out how to build a wheel or something like that. Now, obviously, you want to encourage and figure out ways to make sure that the student, well, maybe not nowadays, but you want to figure out ways to make sure the students are learning how to think more than learning what to think or just memorizing things or whatever. But he has this weird obsession with trying to get rid of any hierarchies anywhere where, you know, a person most knowledgeable <laughs> would be the one to impart knowledge to somebody. He's, even though, of course, he's doing that with the, with the book. He's trying to say, no, they shouldn't have any authority and they shouldn't be the focal point and all, all this other stuff. And uh, it's just, is this really the best idea? Then he goes uh, beyond the watershed. He talks about uh, traditional teachers and status level tests, lectures, teachers have power, rule by authority. 
trust is at a minimum between students and teachers. I don't know if that's the case. Students don't choose policy. That's definitely the case. And he says there's no place for whole persons, only intellects. Dun, dun, dun. And every time we get into this kind of stuff, I always want to ask them to apply it to something that's more concrete. Because when it's just kind of general, you know, when it's like education, there's a lot of gray area when it comes to education where you can at least make arguments to say that, okay, this, this path works or this path didn't work or we should be doing more of this or less of that or whatever. It's not just like engineering where does it fit together or does it not, you know? So I always want to apply this kind of a thing to something more concrete. He emphasizes the emotional component. Component. The emotional component is important and suggests that the teachers and, and educators in general don't want to do this because it would put students and faculty at an equal level. And that's the point. They don't want to lose their power. So that's the reason they don't do this kind of a teaching. He wants students to develop their own learning and just go out there and decide, this is how I'm going to learn, this is what I'm going to learn. And I always, I wonder, okay, when they get out to the real world and when they try to go to a job and say, you know what, <laughs> supervisor, this is how I want to do the job. So you just are going to have to deal with that because we're whole persons. Treat me as a whole person. All right. Talks about his teaching a little bit and teachers who wrote to him more anecdotes about how they felt about the differences in this kind of an education and then bam right back into apply area of the intuitive and the psychic and says tries to use being in a sensory deprivation situation tries to use that as some kind of evidence of that the concrete is like they're everybody has their own reality or something because you have visions when you're in <laughs> in sensory deprivation and references telepathic communication in tribes uh, remote tribes psychic dreams Ouija boards who that predict the death. And it wasn't the day of the death of the person. It was within a few days of the death of the person. So I'm not sure how it missed a, few, <laughs> missed a couple of days. I'm not sure what else it could predict or why just that particular person's death. But he actually references it and then talks about intuitive and psychic powers. And again, it's this issue. You're putting a bunch of nonsense. Even if you had like one case that you just, it was perfect and you couldn't crack it any other way. It must be mysticism or magic or whatever else. You're still putting that side by side with this alleged idea of your rigorous scientific analysis and trying to figure out what's best when it comes to psychoanalysis in general. So, I mean, it undermines so much any kind of a credibility that this person is trying to say that they have. If they had talked about this stuff but made sure to put it into a particular box and scale it, you know, based on the evidence, that would have been something else. But it seems like it's all up in the air. You know, all of it's just like, oh, this one thing happened once, this one anecdote, so I've got this entire system of psychoanalysis now. Talks about learning in large groups and workshops and how nobody commands there and no one rules and then people asking him for, to get up and give a lecture, but he wouldn't do it and, and how that was so incredible and great. And then he talks about what's going to happen in the future, praises China for a little bit for some reason. <laughs> he says, we need drastic changes. You don't need charismatic leaders. And if you have a group, then they're just going to figure it out and be air free. I mean, just look at Chaz. So they just put it all together. <laughs> And that's what I picture. That's what I picture is his educational institutions, how they're they're functioning, is like Chaz, where you have they reinstitute segregation. You've got different factions coming up and taking power, and people being assaulted, and them trying to farm but not knowing anything about farming. So it's absolutely horrendous, and they they like put it just put some dirt on some cement and just. <laughs> 
just try to try to make some tomatoes or something based on that and that's just what i picture so he brings up nuclear war of course that was a big thing at the time and how traditions are tyrannical and just kind of force people into sticking to the traditions and describes a person of tomorrow that he thinks will come about and whole persons not just the intellect and then he throws in he's frustrated that people think that intelligence and rationality can solve anything and that those things led us to vietnam yeah intelligence and rationality led us to vietnam that's so incredibly nothing of a statement that's like saying intelligence and rationality led us to bowling it it means nothing so that's where we ended up on that book okay so what's my analysis boo that's the beginning of my analysis. Uh, I'm not I'm not against any mystical stuff in principle. It's all perfectly open and can absolutely be true. You just, you have to prove it. And it has to scale to the evidence that you have for it. So if you just have somebody who said it one time, that is absolutely horrendous evidence. <laughs> and it's just tossed in there, no scaling. It's offered as kind of concomitant with science. It's ridiculous. It's mostly anecdotes about patients the author's egocentric too, so you can see it where you'll have the author reference the anecdotes that he references and make sure to mention how they said how awesome he was. You know, or when it came to the group things, he would make sure to mention that they were saying, oh, can't we get Rogers up there? Everybody, Everybody's in a <laughs> raucous about getting Rogers up there to speak because he's so awesome and important. And so there's that narcissism and egocentrism that is just annoying. And he's just kind of, the way he goes through it, he's just like certain of his positions. They're all correct, so don't worry about it. We just need to get everybody else to accept them now. And that's obviously frustrating. He operated from this posture of academia or the profession in general just not being open to his correct conclusions. There's a lot of prosecution talk about why people reject his ideas rather than being having humility about how just up in the air all this stuff is. So there's little of actual value. I mean, talking about emotional development, at least being cognizant of that when it comes to raising kids or teaching kids in general and, and making sure that you teach them in the best way. I mean, that's perfectly fine. But I always wonder how much of this psychoanalysis is just indulging narcissism. How much of it is the point of just indulging narcissism? The people get to be the center of the universe with an important psychologist incessantly interested in their every mundane thought and detail about them. So I mean, how much is it actually helping anybody? What's the big picture? Uh, psychology needs to get to a scientific rigor that rivals things like engineering. It's just, it's so up in the air. And obviously, that is relative to engineering. Obviously, there are a lot of psychologists doing a lot of great work and, and putting in a lot of great work when it comes to this. But the method, too, when it comes to the, the talking cure, the method, it influences the subject. So you just wonder how much of that is just this reinforced mechanism, this back and forth kind of a thing. They're, I mean, the subject themselves are running these narratives in their brain about all this stuff and... You've got like emotional upheaval and revelation, recovery, relapse, all these things that are just running stories in their brain about this stuff and they have confirmation bias all over the place. And then you've got the psychologist doing doing the same thing where they, they've got their own narratives about their own brilliance or unique contribution to the literature or confirming whatever theory that they're working on. And so you have to wonder how much is actually <laughs> how much is actually useful or important or narrowed down or actually scientifically supported. 
And even beyond that, all these people who are subjects here are of a particular caste who use psychology as a discipline. You know, whether you're one of the patients or one of the psychologists or psychoanalysts, you still, you directly have some kind of an interest in this discipline, and so that could color what kinds of conclusions or how convincing you find all this stuff. And I will say, <laughs> obviously, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a scientist, so who knows, but, I mean, it's likely better to treat people as objects for physical and psychological ailments. That will take out a lot of that stuff, a lot of that subjective stuff, where you're just trying to figure out what the ailment is and what can likely affect it. You know, whether you want to talk about how empathic you are or anything like that, you still, it's about the result. It's not about you, and it's not about... Whether you're a good person or whether you're empathic or whether you really understand what they're going through or whatever else, there's likely that distance, dispassionate, objective method of figuring out what's going on with this person and the best way to approach it, rather than mixing in all of your subjective personality with it. And thanks for all the postmodernism nonsense, too. And just emotions in general, they should be dealt with to the extent necessary to get them out of the way to finding the truth. They could be useful for manipulating people, if that's what you're trying to do, but they should be roundly de-emphasized as methods of interaction or exploration of topics when trying to figure out what's true. So anyway, this is way longer than I hoped it would be. I was hoping I'd just be able to record this quickly, <laughs> get it edited, and get it knocked out, but this is just massive. So I hope it was worth worth the listen. I hope it was fun to learn about, and I will see you on the next one. This is The Last Coffee House. Bye. <laughs>